Hello, everybody. Welcome to season two of Sweat the Technique. This is Ravi Gupta, and we've got a lot of fun stuff in store for this season. And this particular episode that you're about to listen to, it features Chris Stewart, who is a host of the Citizen Stewart Show on the Branch Network. And that's a show all about K-12 education. I appear on it very often. And this particular episode might get a little bit contentious. And I think it's a passionate debate and discussion between two people who've been involved in the education system. And it's very much on our corner, um, productive sometimes uncomfortable, passionate dialogue. And so I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Sweat the Technique. Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Stacey Shells Harvey. I am the CEO of Regeneration Schools, which is a network of public charter schools. We've got six schools in Chicago, three schools in Cincinnati. And this podcast is a group of educators that have had success in developing teachers and leaders. And now we just want to apply all of the aspects of life to what we've learned. And today I'm super excited to talk to Chris Citizen Stewart, who is the CEO of Brightbeam, a national network of activists fighting for educational opportunity and justice for every child. He's the host of Citizen Stewart, which is a podcast about education in America. But what I also am excited to bring into this conversation today is that he's a husband and he's a father. So our topic today is not just theoretical. It's personal for both of us. I'm a mother. I'm a wife. And Chris, you wrote an article that has a really provocative title. In the American public education system, Black children are the new cotton. And so I'm really excited to dive into this with you today with my educator hat on, with my mommy hat on, (laughs) because I find that this is the topic in so many of the discussions with me and my girlfriends as we're navigating this education system. So can you just tell us a little bit about your article, the context, and the thought and feeling and the love that you put into this? Because this is a love letter. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on today. It is Always cool to be in your esteemed company, Stacy. <laughs> I always feel smarter when I'm with you. So when I think about this article that I wrote, first of all, there was the prompt from Huffington Post to me. They were writing a series on violence in America, and they asked me if I could write something about education as violence. And they were thinking about all the ways, like with the Black community specifically, the systems that serve us are systems of violence towards us. So I, I had this big kind of prompt, like, how do I write? Everything that I know as an education advocate and everything I've been thinking about all this time, how do I use this prompt? Well, first of all, how do I just answer this prompt? Like, you know, how is public education violence in America? So, I mean, there were a few things that came to me right away, which is I've been saying for years that black children are the new cotton. And what I meant by that was that my child is an industry. My child, there are so many people that their mortgage being paid because my child exists that it stops my kid from being a kid anymore. Now they literally are a commodity for a bunch of people. And when I think about from left and right, from the political left and the right, everybody is looking at the black male body as a profit center in one way or another, right? It's a profit center for the social workers and the teachers and the principals and everybody who runs schools that have our kids in them but aren't teaching our kids. They are all living quite well. These are all college-educated people who have a place in the American economic mainstream lording over schools with black bodies in it that are not on the hook for actually making sure that those children's minds are improved. They just want their bodies in the seat, 
right? They just want them there. And anytime anybody tries to move them out of that seat and put the body somewhere else, they freak out. They don't freak out when nothing is going in the head of the child. But if you try and move the body out of the system somewhere else, that's when all hell breaks loose. And it gets bigger than that, Stacey, because I was trying to estimate the cost of a black child. Like, you know, when you think about all the kids that they put on Ritalin, and you think about big pharma making money off of our kids, all of the book writers who write books about our deficits and how to fix our deficits, all of the consultants to public education who figure out ways to control us and to make sure that, you know, we're a commodity. That's my bottom line. My child is a commodity. I want people to know, never feel broke when you're putting your children into these systems because so many people are making their living off of your child. That makes your child very valuable. So if your child is that valuable and there's a price on your child's head, you might as well act that way and put the system on the hook for doing something for your million dollar child that you have. But then, you know, the, I started thinking about it from a historic perspective. Black intellectual thought for years has been telling us to be weary of joining any educational camp for our kids. We always have to be on the lookout, regardless of what kind of school they're in, who they're working with, who teaches them. And you probably saw in the article, I mentioned W.B. Du Bois, Julian Bond, Dr. Martin Luther King. Each of them gave us a stern warning. Du Bois gave us a warning that neither segregated nor integrated schools are the thing that we need. What we need are schools that teach our kids, period. And, and respect their humanity, because you can have people that think very poorly of our kids in any kind of school system. Julian Bond said violence is, you know, sending a kid to school for 12 years and have them come out with a six years worth of education, right? And then Dr. King, the most surprising quote of all was Dr. King, who said, when you talk about, he said, I favor integration for the purposes of, you know, public accommodations. But when you talk about education, you're talking about something different. You're talking about the intellectual development care of our boys and girls. And that's the most precious commodity that we have. That's the most precious thing we have as a race. Why would we turn that over? Why would we turn that over? to people who think so low of us. And um, boy, that was stunning for me because, you know, he's known about integration. But here he's telling you, be careful where you put your children. And the final thing I'll say, there's a quote in here that I think sticks out to me in this article that I wrote. Today, many black children attend schools with more metal detectors than mental health services, more police officers than counselors, and more of a look of a starter prison than a school. And that for me sums up everything that I don't for any of my kids. I literally don't want to leave my kids in a building where my kids are funny, gregarious, creative. They are not balls of deficits. They get on my nerves sometimes, but they are smart, funny, aware, astute in so many ways that I do not want to turn them over to any system or any group of people that see them as a bag of deficits that need to be fixed. Okay. You have said a lot. I know. <laughs> I know. This is what I do. Okay, where do I start? You said a lot. Okay, so as an educator, the one thing that I do have to say is that many of us could make a living doing other things. And we get up every morning. I get up every morning because I am passionate about children learning. And I am passionate about accountability. And I'm sitting right now in a turnaround because that school didn't measure up to the levels of accountability and that school was closed because of it. And they asked Regeneration to take over and to turn it around because there was 0% proficiency, Chris, at 
fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade math. Single digit proficiency in most of the elementary levels. But the part, people always talk about a classroom to prison pipeline, right? People might think that those test scores are why it was a classroom to prison pipeline, but the children had picked up horrible habits of absolute violence all the time with no accountability for the violence. Behaviors that if they were to step outside on the street would be considered a felony with no consequences. And what we stepped into, that piece to me was the real classroom to prison pipeline. Because you're doing things at school every day that you would get arrested for and you're walking back in the next day and doing it again and doing it again and doing it again and nothing's happening. And this was a a school that was ran by primarily founded by black people. And I'm not trying to put them down. That's why I said one of the things I want to talk about is also community and schools being equipped for the realities. I think that some people don't always understand the realities that well-intended people are faced with who pick this profession because of a passion, not because they wanted to take down people of color, because like the founders of this, and this school was once a phenomenal school, but then like some things changed, right? This school had decades of being a phenomenal school. And in the past 60 days, I have had to take a deep breath, Chris, like, and I had to get security. And when we had a threat of shooting up to kill everybody in the school, now I'm pricing out metal detectors, Chris, because I have a responsibility to keep every child in this school safe. Like the number one high school in the state of Ohio, which is actually my alma mater, when you walk in that door, there is security and there are metal detectors. At my son's private school, now there, like, we're also in a, and so that also takes me to, we're also in, I don't want to say a different world, because a part of it is, is, is one world, right? Like, it's not, there's 50,000 worlds. There's one world that we live in, but things are a little bit different. Not, I'm not going to say vastly, but in some areas vastly, in some areas exactly the same as when in 1935, W.E.B. Dubois wrote that article where he said, integrated or mixed, segregated or not, where are children being received, being loved? Don't run to ship your child somewhere just because it's white so they can get there and be hated, right? And when I think about the Great Depression and I think about sharecropping and I think about like in 1934, W.B. Du Bois had just departed the NAACP because he was going in a different direction than what they were fighting for because they were still fighting for legislation and, you know, government to make changes. And then I think about Mary McLeod Bethune, right? And in 1936, she was the first African-American woman with a presidential appointment for like the services of youth. And I think about what they were looking at then. And I'm asking myself, what are the similarities now? Is their warning, what parts of their warning are still true, hold true? And then what has changed for the better? Because I don't want to believe that like 
the work that I'm doing, the work that Julie Jackson's doing, the work that Daryl Cobb is doing, the work that Kaya Henderson's doing is not being noted, as well as the Doug Lamoffs, as well as the Paul Bambergs, as well as people who have been working and sending more black kids to college, public schools. And I'm not going to say that ever before, but a dramatic increase, right? Like as people are working hard every day to change, to dramatically change the numbers that you're talking about. And it's people of all backgrounds. And I'm not trying to sound like all kumbaya because I do also understand. You see what I'm saying? Like I had teachers who I felt believed in me and I had teachers who I know saw nothing in me, nothing. And so, yes, parents have to know their child's worth, right? But there are people who love kids in these schools. And then also, not to add even more complexity to it, you can love a child, you can believe in a child, you can create a classroom environment that is feels so good and still teach them nothing. So I, I do want us to like eventually come back to that accountability piece because our progressive, you know, friends <laughs> yeah. are doing some things. But what do you make of that when you think of the Daryl Cobbs, when you think of the Kaya Hendersons, when you think of the people that are working hard every day to make a change? Where do you think that we are now within that warning? So I would recontextualize some of these questions. So first of all, let me just say at a very high level, I think there's a difference between the, what I call the Monday problem and what I call the long-term problem. The Monday problem is if you're an educator listening to this, your probably only question is, this is all great conversation, but how's this, how does this make me better for next Monday morning when I face a classroom full of 35 kids, 32 kids, however many kids? Like It's more short-term in its thinking. Like I've heard a lot of these conversations, but if it doesn't make me, if it doesn't give me something practical to be able to do with my job next week and my kids that I'm trying to teach, it's, a, it's more abstract. Right. So that that to me is the difference between winning battles and winning the war. Right. So educators, I think educators, especially those in schools day to day, really think about battles more than they think about the long term war. And I think the Daryl Cobbs and the Kaya Hendersons of the world, what they have, I think, on others is that they've thought about both. Right. So history doesn't teach us anything more than it, that it evolves. Like we can't just think about Du Bois and think about now. Like there's not a whole bunch of stuff that happened in between those two those two poles, right? That got us to where we are today. So like, here's my battle with educators and the schools that they run. I get that they have a job to do today, but I also get that there's so much missing about the world in the application of how they do their job that I have to take it for what it's worth. They may be very talented at teaching kids how to read or maybe even getting some to go to college. And that's still insufficient for the longer term war that we're fighting. That's actually a battle. That's not a war. And it's somewhat culturally incompetent to think that just getting more of our people in college is the story or that's the end of the story. If that's the problem that you are working on and writing books about and putting your, your life on the line for, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you for the small part that you are doing to reverse 400 years of history that includes things like putting people in parts of cities on purpose that create a certain type of person, right? Like people come out of the soil that they're born in. And oftentimes the soil that you put people in is created and crafted. It's man-made. So we created these man-made lakes 
of deindustrialized cities and put kids into high lead paint areas of cities that everybody else fled. And then we piled them on top of each other with very little green space and very little of everything that suburban people buy their houses for. We took that all away from large groups of people. And today, now we say, God, I just don't know what's wrong with them. I don't know. I mean, they got so many problems. We got to figure out how to regulate them. We got to figure out how to manage them. We got to figure out how to punish their parents for not having solved decade after decade after decade of you compounding injustice on this group of people in a way that you didn't do to anybody else's children. Let me say one thing, though, Chris. Okay, go ahead. It is culturally irresponsible to think that schools are supposed to solve that 400-year problem, too. And it's actually okay for schools and educators to play their part in that battle. As long as they know that's what they're solving. People put everything on schools. Mm -mm. No. Nope. <laughs> they want schools to be everything to everybody, but they can't. I disagree with that, though. I just want to say that. I think that's the way educators look at it, but I think social workers look at it differently, you know, differently than educators do. People also need to build other organizations that support the community, as opposed to thinking that they're going to take people who went to school to learn to teach children how to read and write, right? And to teach children how to do math. And then all of a sudden think that they're supposed to also do something that they're not trained in. And when there are people out here with all these opinions, but don't do anything, they don't put their money where their mouth is. They don't put their bright ideas to work. They sit and throw stones in the arena. OK, they sit in the bleachers and throw stones at the warriors. OK, and they throw stones at the people that are getting in here every single day trying to make a difference in the lives of children. And I see more good actors than bad. And a lot of times the bad actors don't know it because it's not their intention, right? You're talking about a whole system. I mean, what, you said, what you're saying right now sounds a little bit about what police officers say about cops. Let me finish. No, nope, I'm not done. Also <laughs> said, oh, not much has happened between W. Du Bois and now. Yes, there has been a lot that's happened. The fact that I was able to create my own network of schools with my own curriculum where children see not only themselves in the mirror, but a window into other cultures that is social justice oriented. The fact that there are Kaya Hendersons and Daryl Cobbs that are able to conceive the larger picture and help fund people like me. Those things can't be taken for granted and spoken on as if they're nothing. Yeah, I hope you're not saying that that's what I was doing, because what I said, what I specifically was saying was we can't act as if a whole bunch of stuff didn't happen between history like Du Bois and today. But the point that I was making was decade by decade, there were a lot of things that happened. We segregated people into parts of cities that were the lowest opportunity parts of the city. We took a lot of the things out of those parts of the cities that we put them in that we would not want to take out of our own lives, right? We, like resources and, and ways of being. And year by year, Black folks created civic societies in places like Gary, Indiana, Chicago, northern cities that they migrated to from Mississippi and other places. And for many years, they were building schools and churches and a civic society and wealth and producing people that went off to do professional jobs like more Black lawyers, more Black doctors. It was more of a community event back then to leave the South, to go to the North, to find opportunity to create neighborhoods and create places. And if you ask yourself today, 
what is different about those very same places in Gary and Chicago and wherever else, you know, Michigan, different Detroit, different places? That's a very good question because it makes you start digging into the whys. What changed? Well, this changed. That's it. Why? Keep asking why and keep going down the rabbit hole of why Detroit looks different today than it did or Chicago or Gary. It isn't just because people woke up one morning and decided, you know what? I want to make this place terrible, right? It was because economic factors, you know, I lived through the 70s and the 80s, deindustrialization, disinvestment from cities, union jobs going away, people that used to work at GM don't work at GM anymore, people that the stuff that made you leave and go to Los Angeles and go to Detroit and go to Chicago, at some point, the hopes and the dreams of that thing that lured my grandparents out of Louisiana to go to these other places, eventually a lot of what they moved there for, the bottom fell out during my dad's generation, right? My grandfather was the one who left. My dad's generation did something new. And then there comes my generation. So then I lived through the deindustrialization that made my grandfather successful, right? So my grandfather had, you know, opportunity to migrate. My father had opportunity to do things like, you know, the 70s affirmative action type programs that were opening doors for stuff. And then I lived through the crack 80s where, you know, systems and whole things were falling apart. And even then, we were talking about children as super predators. We weren't talking about the fact of Reaganism and what it was doing for the world that was different than my grandfather's world and different than my father's world, right? So even when I talked to my father, my grandfather, right, like they had a different existence than what I as a young person in the 80s was seeing with my generation, my peer generation. I was seeing decline, all right, in systems and not one system in education systems, in policing systems, in neighborhood systems, in the things that used to keep us cohesive together, I was, see, I was witnessing a change, right? So when we talk today as if there weren't a decade-by-decade decade march that got us to where we are today, so when we talk about a kid coming into a school today needing metal detectors and all that stuff, it's great to talk about it as if it's a today-right-now problem. It's better in my mind to talk about it as deep thinkers about there is a bigger kind of world here at play and we can solve small, discrete problems. That's cool for now. We put Band-Aids on things, but we need from our mayors and from our county systems and from our welfare systems and from our housing systems and from our workforce cabinets at state levels, we need them to actually be more kind of integrative about their approach of how we handle the same child. Because sometimes you are talking about a child who has a parent who is responding to multiple systems at once for the care of that child, right? And this is the thing that I, I take issue with in like what you just said about educators. I think educators are very sensitive to any critique or criticism. It, just to be very honest with you, I think out of any group of people in any profession, I think they respond to critique and criticism in a way that is way more kind of sensitive than attorneys or somebody else. And then they talk in global language, like everybody thinks this about us and we put everything on the school. I worked in the welfare system. I worked in social services. I have been an education advocate for years. I've worked in schools. I've supported school leaders. I've seen these things from the perspective of having a caseload. I had the family as my caseload and I had to work with everybody that had a touch on that family. 
And I'd have woken up every day being like, oh my God, everybody's putting everything on me. I had a caseload of 150 people that had very serious issues in life that they were working with. And they were having to respond to multiple systems and they were being penalized for all the different systems that they were working with. Like they, they turn in a form late, you lose your food. You know, you turn in a housing report. You're talking about education as all. And so I think it's important that we are nuanced, right? And Here's the one thing about education, too, that is different with lawyers and different with doctors. Now, one thing I want to say is feedback is a huge part of what we do. We stand in classrooms and jump in to teaching, to model for teachers, to teach them how to get. We are heavy on feedback. I come from the data era of education, the high accountability era of education. We are constantly using data to make sure we're look, finding out our kids' strengths and their areas for growth to get them to the next level. So feedback is never an issue for us and the, and the people who I am familiar with and I'm in constant dialogue with. However, I was talking to my cousin the other day, and one thing I said to her was, education is one of the few industries where everybody thinks they are and authority. People give their doctors and their lawyers the credit of having a level of authority, or they went to school for that, or they passed the bar for that. But a lot of times they don't give educators that because everyone's been a student. No, no, it's not because of that. It's because educators aren't passing the bar. Educators are failing our praxis to be inducted as teachers after five or six times of taking praxis. And you don't hear attorneys saying we should lower the bar. You don't hear attorneys saying we should lower the bar. <laughs> I know people who actually think the schools are doing well. Like, so there are people who don't know about how many people have failed to practice or whatnot. People feel very comfortable with education because they have experiences in it in a different way. And people feel an authority in education on a different level that you see in other professions. Now, one thing I agree with you on, especially right now and throughout history, schools have been allowed to fail communities for decades, 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 and they stay open. It sounds like you're saying two different things though, right? This is what, this is because I want to tell you what I just heard you say. Like this, that's very two different things. First of all, let me three things. The first one is I don't think that everybody thinks that they know what's going on in schools just because they went. Uh, I've heard that a lot from educators, and I think it's a good tagline that I've heard a lot. In my experience with many families over long periods of time, I have heard more of them saying, I don't know what those people do in there. I have heard more about it's mysterious. I don't even want to go up there. I don't want to deal with those people. I don't even know what they're talking about half the time. They call me and tell me things that I don't even understand half the time. They send me stuff in the backpack that I don't understand. I've heard more of that than I've heard like I, I'm an expert uh, on what's going on in those schools. I've heard more kind of, I don't know what the hell they're doing, but 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 it's not really working for me you know, as a parent. And I feel that way. I, I talk about education a lot and I have three kids in schools right now where I don't know 100% of what they've got going on in there sometimes. And I talk about, I still have to call people like you and others in my network with things that are going on in our school and say, does this seem right to you, right? Like I could give you a story right now, I'm not going to, but I could give you a story right now that I had to call Sharif el Mackey, a colleague, and say, Sharif, this is what the teachers are telling me. This is what the school is telling me. It doesn't feel right. Can you give me your professional explanation of this? And then it's good to have people like that in your life because then he comes back and he says, that is some BS. I don't know what they're trying to, to do with you or whatnot, but this is what I would do. 
right? So, so the thing about feeling like we're knowledgeable, maybe some people have opinions about schools that's based on the fact that they think they know so much. But I feel like a lot of people are mystified about why things work the way that they work in schools. I will also say that you kind of just said two things. We as teachers, we as educators, we, you know, this and people think about the profession this way and that way or whatnot. And I would respond to that by saying, I do think that there's a difference, number one, in the quality and the and what it takes to be a doctor and a lawyer. And I think educators are fooling themselves if they think that that the professions are equal or the same and that we should talk about them the same way. You are fooling yourself if you are thinking that the many years that you go to medical school and then the many years that you do residency and the many times that you have to fail to be kicked out of the pathway to becoming a doctor is the same as people who fail the praxis test multiple times, who are not licensed in the area that they're teaching, who have math problems themselves even as they're teaching math. And then we see things like, like think about Atlanta. Think about Atlanta where all those teachers had a teaching scandal, right? That's a problem. But what I'm saying is people still deserve a level of respect for what they're doing. And if you don't respect them, you gotta you have a right and a responsibility to go find a school with educators that you do respect. We're also talking about different content. And so if you don't have respect for the people that are educating your children, you have a right and responsibility to find people who you do respect. If you can. Right. I mean, like not everybody has the same choices in life. What I see middle class people doing is that all the time. I see middle class people saying there's no way I would send my kid to this school or I'd be treated this way or that way. But not everybody that mobility. Right. That ability to say just like, you know, same thing with police departments. There are things in the suburbs that you would not put up with from your police department. There are places in this world where you have to put up with exactly what is being done to you. And that's why we have riots sometimes is because after years and years and years of that happening, people get sick and they get tired and they know they can't move anywhere else. They don't have like a, the ability to up and move to better police, better schools, better courts, you know, better systems all over. And the professionals in all of those systems will tell you the same set of things. Number one, you come be a cop for five days and I'll, you know, it'll show you. These people are terrible in so many ways. I'll show you the truth if you come and be me for a few days. To which I'm like, listen, if you've ever done a police ride along, you will see some things where it will make you be like, oh, damn, this job is kind of hard right? This is kind of a tough job. At the same time, you will see that overthinking and indexing on that thought too much is, is what gives you rogue police departments that treat people very poorly. And I think it's the same thing with school systems. And you have some schools that I have visited where they have stopped thinking of the children as learning people and have started thinking of the children as just a problem to be managed on their way to a pension, right? And that's why there is such a thing as school reform is because we have had schools like that for so long. And so that leads me to where we are now, because now with the number of charter schools, now people who may not have had an option before pick different schools. I see it every day. I will get on the phone at times and have a conversation with a parent that's saying, hey, I want to pick a different school. Well, let me know why. We have people who are picking different schools. But once again, just like you said, you can't put everybody in one boat. Yes, there are schools where people are looking at children like the roadway to a pension. But I would push to say that it's dangerous to look at all schools and the entire educational system from that lens. 
So where's the hope? Yeah, uh, yeah, I would say that too. I would agree with that. But I would say there's 8 million black children in the system right now. 8 million black children in the United States. They're getting up every morning and they are walking into a system and they are walking, majority of them are walking into a system that isn't charter schools, isn't private schools, isn't home schools, isn't micro schools. The majority of the 8 million black children getting up every day are going into 14,000 different school districts with 100 different 100,000 different schools with teachers that mostly don't look like them, mostly don't, I wouldn't put my kids in the care of every day, mostly don't look like you and have school boards that don't look like you. The majority of school boards in the United States have school board members that are more white, more male and more Republican than the the students in the schools that they serve over. So if we don't take a more meadow look at what is going on with our 8 million black children, and we try to localize it to communities or small places without seeing the bigger picture, black America is turning its children over every morning to a system and to a group of people in a way that no other race is doing every day, right? White people are not turning their kids over to middle-aged black women every day to get their major education for their life. They are not turning their, their children over to people that are economically, socially, culturally, politically different to them in the way that black people are doing. And I can't ignore the meta view of that as I visit individual schools that I really like. I can tell you, I, I have visited schools for more than 10 years. For more than a decade, I have done school visits across the country in many places. I've seen great things where I would leave my own kid in it. I've seen things that are just like, okay, you know, just like meh, whatever. I wouldn't hate it if my kid was in it, but it wouldn't be my first choice. And then I've seen some things that most of the middle-class educated people I know would never put their kids in the same circumstances to where these kids are trapped. What I would say to that is there are things that I agree with, but I also believe in finding the bright spots because I've been on school visits for 30 years and I have walked into schools on the same street, same exact street and seen two different things, same community, two different outcomes for kids. And so what that leads me to is, because this has to also be, it can be out here, but it's got to come back to something for our parents who are educators, parents who are not educators that are listening. One of the things that I've found is that the school leader makes a huge difference in a school. Because even in that system where black people are sending their kids, there are good schools in that system, too. There are schools that are working hard for kids in that system, too. There are schools that are failing kids miserable in that system, too. And so we have to find the bright spots because a lot of it has to do with making schools better because there are enough bright spots Two schools, same community, same exact street, where one is getting vastly different outcomes for kids. That means what they're doing here, they can do there too. Do you, and I, I, I refuse to believe that the majority of the people who are getting bad outcomes are coming in with some draconian like, I can't wait to make life hell for these black kids today. I want them all to fail. I want them to go to hell and fail. I'm going to stand here with my white self in front of these black children and take them straight to hell. That, does that person exist? Yes. But I want to go back to why people get into what they get into for. I do believe that training Development, identifying 
what makes schools better. And I do think in the past 20 years, ed reform, we have figured some things out that when you apply them to large areas, you can see change. When I left Uncommon Schools, I wanted to see, could I take the things that I learned and go to three campuses, six schools in Chicago that were performing charter schools at the bottom 17% of the state. I did turnaround. I'm seeing in turnaround right now. And I had a lot of the same people. Okay. I didn't go in and say, everybody's fired. I didn't do that. I didn't even get a chance to go in and say, apply for your job. I, I got there on July 4th, started my training with staff and teachers Two weeks later with leaders, then staff, in one year, Rahm Emanuel was giving us award for the highest growth, one-year growth in Chicago that year. By the three years, we went from the bottom 17% to the top 36, 30, and 25% of the state. We dramatically changed outcomes. Some of the same teachers that weren't getting outcomes received the training that they needed to get outcomes. And so it's not that I am denying what you are saying. But what I'm saying is people like me have to believe that it is possible. We have to believe that the system can work. We can blow up the system. We can make changes to the system. We can do different things. But I refuse to believe that the majority of the people sitting there are inherently bad people who just want a paycheck. I think there's some tired people. I think there's some burnout people. And I'm not talking about cops right now. And please do not compare me because I'm not saying the same thing. This is what I'll say to that, because this this feels like educator speak, educator talk. And this is what I'll say that's different about it. It's not about what I believe is not. I'm not a person who 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 operates on what I believe. And I don't think that black people and I'm speaking specifically to us because I actually don't care what educators and systems think that they're doing. I care about what they're actually doing and what can empirically be proven. I don't do MAGA talk like I don't think that teachers are inherently bad and blah, blah, blah. Well, no one's saying that. What I am saying is empirically, the evidence shows us that teachers are walking into classrooms every day with attitudes that are not science-based about our children. I'm not making that up. It's not what I believe. It's what science tells us about the attitudes about Black children and the teachers that are serving them. That the way that they look at our children, they see them as older than they are. They see them as less innocent than they actually are. When there is a problem and it's between a white child and a black child, by science, by evidence that we have, they treat the black child and the white child differently. And this, is, this happens across, I'll give you a very specific example. They did an eye tracking experiment with black and white teachers. They put several children at a table and they said, we need you to make note of all the infractions, the behavioral infractions of these children that they do. The, the issue was that there was no infractions being had, but what they were doing was they were tracking the eyes of the teachers to see where they would put their attention as they looked for misbehavior, and they put it exactly on the black children and specifically on black boys. I'm not saying I believe anything about that. I'm saying science keeps telling us that type of story over and over and over again in, in ways that no parent, even as educators talk a whole different game, no parent should ignore what I just said. The science of how schools and educators and teachers and college educated people think about and look at black children is something that is scientifically studied, researched, and it comes out with answers that we should pay attention to as black parents and as black people who entrust our kids to other people. It is not about liking them or thinking they're all good or terrible or great or bad or any of that stuff. It's not about that because we are we are a science based people. <laughs> so then the data tells us something specific. I don't disagree with you. I already know that study. Read it understand it. 
And guess what we guess what we did then? We made sure we had culturally relevant pedagogy in our staff training. I'm not saying we ignore that. I'm saying we have to take that and do something with it more than distrust. Wait, wait, who's the we? You mean educators have to do something or parents? Everybody. Because those are different groups. What I'm saying is there's what you do with it as an educator. There's what you do with it as a parent. There's what you do with it as a teacher. If you are a parent and you are reading that, then you need to have your eyes open. You can make the principal, you can ask them, hey, what culturally relevant pedagogy are you doing? You can ask questions. You can ask to see suspension rates. There are things that you can do as a parent with that information other than just being aware and holding a school accountable. Okay. There are things as a school leader you can do for yourself, for your staff to make sure we're aware of those things, to make sure like literally in the city of Chicago right now for charter renewal, we have to send in all of those suspension rates. That stuff will be public knowledge. So if you're a parent, what do you do with that information? You have to do something more than it make you scared. You have to have that information and then you have to you have to have some resources and a toolbox. If it's for you and you have the privilege of being able to call people who are extremely intelligent and high up in education to give you advice. If you don't, then you need to ask your principal what's being done. You need to look at, like I said, suspension rates. If you are an educator, you need to be looking at your talent lead. Making sure that you are 70% of my staff are people of color. You need to make sure that you are getting teachers of color who are applying because we know that they are out there. Yeah, there's so few of them, though. So few so of them. So if your school <laughs> yeah. is all white and you think there's not a black teacher out there, then my gut is you didn't look in the right places. Okay? And so I can't tell you. I have never, I work as a public school district teacher in New York City Public. There are plenty of black teachers in the building. As a matter of fact, I worked under three different schools in the South Bronx, and every single one of them was led by a person of color. And there was a, a decent distribution of people of all different backgrounds working in the schools. And so what do we do with that information? We have to do something with it. So I do not disagree with you. I agree with you wholeheartedly that we have to know that. I, with my own black son, I'm looking to see, like I'm paying attention, but I'm also trying to make sure that I'm building a partnership. And so you have to figure out a way to be a partnership if you can, in whatever way you have in the space of your life, a partnership in your child's school with the teacher. My son goes to a Montessori school. So I just asked, what should I be working with? Which letters should I start with? How do I help him build his one-to-one -one correspondence with numbers? And I'm reading this off of the report card, literally. And she sent me an email and said, hey, take some beads, work on this. Some of the stuff I was aware of, but I had to test my, like, my gut and my assumptions. So even as an educator, I'm still making sure I'm giving his teacher, I'm thinking about, what I want for my child and how can I get the information? And if she didn't give me something, that's a different story. So, so here's my response to this, because I feel like we're in this internal continuing battle with educators who have a, they have a professional coherence with each other, a professional, almost like a blue line of 
of silence with each other to the point where it becomes like there's parent language and there's educator language about parents. And then there's parents, you know, narratives about educators in schools. And there seems to be this break between the homeschool relationship in some ways that are really important. And I think because I have lived in different places, I have studied this in different ways, I have been a participant in these systems in different ways, I've seen why there could be a challenge between home and school that's different in like in an exurb, a suburb, a private school, uh, a school where people pay for their kids to go to that school, a school where nobody has any money, a school, you know, so in these different scenarios, I could see why the relationship between home and school would be in one school where you have every parent show up for everything and do every parent teacher conference and do bake sales and the whole kind of fundraisers. And there are some schools that have like two, three hundred thousand dollars in raised money just from the parents. I can show you a school Minneapolis where the parents decided that some of them did some research and they wanted to do Singapore math. So they got the money themselves to get the principal to buy Singapore math, to send the teachers to go get trained in it, right? This is just parents pooling together money, right? Go get Singapore math done in their school. Now, this is a public school. This is not private school. This is a public school. And I can tell you three miles from that school is a school with 100% free and reduced lunch just a couple of miles, not even a, a, that far. Actually, Minneapolis isn't that big. So there's this school here that's doing this and not very far away. There's a school with 100% free and reduced lunch with parents that are some, many are in, in shelters and do, got different things going on, right? They're not buying Singapore math. And the attitudes about the parents in the, the one school is that they're great people because they're disinvolved. And the, the attitude about the other school's parents is different than that. It's that they're looked at and they're talked about very differently. Even though I have worked with many of the people in that other school, and I know what's going on with their lives and how much they do care, and they are trying to understand at their level. They are trying to get answers for things. I can tell you about three different grandmothers who got banned from coming to school to ask any more questions about the IEP because the school didn't like the questions that they were asking. I can tell you about a Title I committee that got turned over and disbanded because they were asking about why some of the budget was going to buy violins at a better performing school with fewer kids in poverty. And because they were asking those questions, the district disbanded the Title I committee for that year and said, we'll restart it next year because they were asking uncomfortable budget questions, right? I've been the advocate of these folks who have had fits and starts of trying to be involved only to be very frustrated in how they're being involved. And then others who just have so much trauma about even dealing with any of it, it makes them feel so small and so inconsequential that they don't even want to do it. But I'm only saying this to say, I think from the parent perspective, I learned a lot when I ran an organization called the African American Leadership Forum. In that forum, in that group, we had people at all these different levels. We had school leaders and we had county workers and we had people that were politicians and elected all having this very private meeting with each other on an ongoing basis. And we had grandmothers and grandparents and seeing their different levels of understanding of the same system was good to see it all in one place, to see them kind of ex have exchanges with each other, the elected official, the school leader in a private off the record conversation, like where it wasn't, you know, out in the open and no one was going to feel bad for what they had to say or, or thinking about it. But the thing, my takeaway was that I had millionaires in that group and I had people on government assistance in that group. And to a one, I got calls from people because they knew that I cared so much about education and knew something about the system 
at all levels, even the millionaires, about how do I make move A or B with the schools? We had black folks that had moved out to the suburbs. They felt like they were having to trade culture for academics. You know, suddenly they had daughters that could never date again ever in high school, but they were going to get a good education, right? We moved out here because the schools were great, but my daughter has no prom date and is never going to have a prom date. That type of, I never thought about the ways in which at all levels we're having to figure out school and how we interact with the thing. But what I did see in all of them that was they were trying. They were doing it. They weren't just sitting around having criticism, but they were navigating some questions that were not easy for them to figure out on their own quickly right away, right? And that's why having a forum where they were in the same place at the same time with educators, with school leaders, with Black folks that they trusted, I think was very important to the solution. The solution really was, and I heard a lot of things in those off-the-record conversations where even the educators were very suspicious of the systems that they were working for. It wasn't that we were making up the suspicion. They were literally telling us, man, y'all better watch out for these things, right? Special education. IEPs, know how to read your report card. When you get that stuff back, you know, from the testing, this is how you read it. And we had grandmothers in there who were benefiting from being in the same form with these other people that knew how to decode some of these things, right? I think if we had more efforts like that, more collaborative, off the record efforts for us to close the class gap, because there is a class gap in our community in these, in these problems, and the homeschool gap in a way where it isn't us and them, right? It isn't educators over here and parents over there having different conversations about each other, but in one place. Now, all that sounds really good, but it's very hard in a, a transient urban environment where people are living in very different kind of levels of home life stability, right? I do think that there is an answer here. I've always pushed for chartering and charters of schools. I've always pushed for data and assessments. I've pushed for the normal school reform things over the years. But I always also, though, felt like they were missing an element from my social services days and social work days that I think would be important to actually advance the whole ball forward, not just the test scores and the outcomes and the college admittance rates and all that stuff, but some other stuff that's really important to moving the culture forward. Well, I agree. And I think that the Ed Reform Movement received that feedback loud and very clearly. <laughs> from me. <laughs> A lot of different places, I think, from, from within, you know, because you got people from within who are from the same communities as the children that we serve, you know. So I think that it came from on the outside. It came from the inside. Because like I said, there are people that want to see the whole picture move. And I think that it's also going to require more collaborative effort, right? I think that it's got to be, I think an informal conversation off the record is fine. But like you said, there's the accountability. Who's going to make sure that that committee of special education is answering the tough questions, that's making sure the IEP is correct, making sure who's going to do those things that aren't going to come just from an informal conversation? Because like, we still have to hold ourselves and schools and government accountable. I also think that we have to hold ourselves accountable too. We have to get informed and we have to hold ourselves accountable for, like, I had to hold myself accountable recently in being a good partner because, hey, when it's your child, it's emotional. It is, yes. But it's important. It is so important that we are working together because you have to be comfortable in where you're sending your child to school every day. You have a right to be comfortable in where you're sending your child to school every day. You have a right to know what's going on in the classroom. You shouldn't not know. Like I, I have given feedback 
before to say, hey, the emails are helpful in this aspect, but I want to know what I can be doing at home to support my child. And that's at an expensive school, you know, but I had to also make sure, because like you said, people don't always take feedback well. You see what I'm saying? People are very sensitive about what they're passionate about. You see what I'm saying? And people are not used to accountability. And so like I exist within a paradigm of extreme accountability, but I recognize that there's a school right down the street that has had low test scores for 50 years, but the school I'm sitting here right here is the one that closed down. Okay. And there's probably 15 schools in the city with the same exact results that are still open and still enrolling kids. And so I do think it takes a community. And that goes back to what you and I have discussed even on other episodes of schools actually need a partnership is we actually need help in that. I think you just made my point for me in a different way, though. See what you just said, what you just said. See, you say all this stuff and then you just come around because this is like what you just said that agrees 100 percent with everything I just said. Right. And maybe this maybe this is what I should have said earlier that makes clear where my suspicion comes from. My suspicion is not unfounded. My suspicion is what I learned through reform, that it is possible for a group of educators in a school to beat all the myths that have dogged us in a school right down the block for years, right? So you just mentioned that there are all these other schools in that same area that have been chronically underperforming for years. And then somebody moves in with the same kids, same neighborhood, same area, same thing, and makes some decisions that don't require the parents to be changed right away. Don't require everybody to get rich all of a sudden. Don't require us to redo the economy and redo everything to get some better outcomes for the kids right in a neighborhood where there's like all these other schools that for years, since the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever, have been doing the same thing, turning out what they used to call dropout factories, right? Or chronically, you know, failing schools. So come on, man. Like, listen, we can talk all we want about parental responsibility and how we need to be better partners and how we need to do all this. But us being better partners is not going to better train those teachers in those schools that have been failing for those years and years and years and years, who have principals who don't come to school every day, have principals that sit in their office. Like, listen, you know stories and you worked in Chicago, you know stories of principals that were not at the top of their game in ways that were very dangerous in some ways. Come on. (laughs) When I say partnership, it's because we're reading facts and data, like you said, that said that they are looking at our boys as older. Is that they're, you know, and so as a parent, you have to come into the place where you send your child for eight to nine hours a day. The partnership that I'm talking about is so that you can either know it's not the place or help it become the place by holding them accountable in a partnership. But I agree with you wholeheartedly. And something that you said in your article is one of the things that I actually started out a staff training with, which is during slavery, we learn how to read behind steps in the dark with the light in secret. There is no excuse at all whatsoever. Because we know, and one thing that I like about your references to W.E.B. Du Bois is that he said, we have to believe in our ability. We have to believe in the ability of Black people to 
do well. I want to say that I agree with that point because I wrote it. Done. And <laughs> I will say this. Let me add an and. Yes. I will say, so first of all, the point that I was making there was in the first 30 years after emancipation was the fastest acquisition of literacy amongst the people probably anywhere in history, right? That the acquisition of literacy for Black people went from one in 20 being literate to one out of every two being literate in that 30 years after emancipation. And then a hundred and something years later, we have the majority of kids not being proficient in reading. So that is a, like, think about that as an example. I will also say this though, as a parent who feels that I am reasonably intelligent, I do think that we can do a lot at home to make sure that our kids are learning to read. Our houses should be the first school. They should be rich with colors and text and things that we have in there. We should fill them with stuff that allows kids to explore and learn at home. You know, when I was growing up, the rich people had encyclopedias and we found ways to get encyclopedias too, you know, <laughs> at least the first three of the sequence that they would give you for free. And then, you know, you'd have to buy one at a time, whatever. But that's making sure that your house is a rich environment. There still will come the time in probably about third or fourth grade where what your kids are bringing home to you at points, for some, I can't speak for everybody, but for many people starts exceeding what you're able to help them with, right? I'm thinking specifically about math, right? Like your kids will bring some stuff home and you will look down at it and you will go, I, don't, I got nothing, man. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with that. This has been very good. I enjoy the banter. I want to throw it to you to give a summary and then take us out. This has been a good. I, I want to talk more. I'm like, we got to talk about this some more. Um. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, let me wrap it up. So, so what I would say at the end of the day for all of these things, that these are very important conversations for us to have with each other and keep having across lines of like school and parenting, home and, you know, educator, whatever. We need to actually kind of work this out together. It needs to be a science-based conversation. It needs to be driven by evidence and by data, not by passion and by like what we think. There needs to be a good reckoning of what the history tells us. There needs to be a good reckoning of what changes are pedagogical, like what needs to be done in changes in culture and behavior and all that to me is important too. But I don't think that our schools, because of what I've seen in the best schools that I have seen, I don't think all of our other schools can rely on just blaming parents. They need to start thinking about their pedagogy, their scope and sequence, how they use staff time, how they use budgets, how they arrange their school day, how they arrange their resources, what is a strong curriculum and what isn't. If you haven't answered all of these things yet, it's a little bit of a jumping ahead to start talking about the kids and the parents and whatnot if you haven't figured out these things, because the best schools have started with making sure these things are strong. And by these things, I mean the actual educational science that undergirds the school that they're running. And I will feel better about putting my kids in those schools where the educators have that under control. And listen, I'm all ears after that with about needing to run an orderly school and an orderly society. We do need better behavior too. So <laughs> I'm with it. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I definitely believe that we have to look at the science. As schools, we have to make sure that our kids are achieving because if there's one thing that we know as a people is that our children can learn, our children can achieve, and they spend the largest part of the day at school with educators and educators have to pay attention to the things that are within their locus of control. And when they do that, they can see achievement for all children. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. This has been a very great conversation. I love sparring with you, Chris. I really appreciate you. Okay. We started this conversation off by talking about what it made the conversation so personal. 
what made the topic so personal and what makes it personal for me is not only the students that I serve, but my own three-year-old son. And when I think about the world that I want him to live in, the world that he will inherit, when I think about the education and where I send him every single day, I know that the educators that receive my whole heart and soul deserve not only the same respect as any doctor, any lawyer, any engineer, but the compensation as well. Because when he walks into that classroom, they are laying the groundwork for him to fulfill his own dreams, to become an engineer, to become a doctor. And we've got teachers who are leaving the workforce in droves. So if we want to fix a large system, we'd be fools to think that fixing that system can start anywhere from being able to attract the brightest and the best. And that starts with respect. The educational system is inherently a flawed institution where brown and black children are disproportionately disadvantaged and disserviced. But I'd argue that the criminal justice system, which is the new Jim Crow, or the medical system, where the Black maternal mortality rate, Black women are dying while giving birth three times more than white women at the same rate as third world countries. I argue those systems are equally as flawed. And the question always remains, when faced with the brutal facts, what do you do? You have to maintain a sense of optimism in the face of adversity. You've got to turn and face anything that is disparaging, anything that is wrong with what you have, what's in the locus of your control. And to that degree, I'd argue that educators are actually receive feedback better than most people. It's the reason why, as Chris stated, we're always asking, what can I do in my classroom tomorrow? Because see, feedback is an investment in capacity. It comes with actionable and measurable steps that impact outcomes. Anything less is just dogma. People standing in the bleachers, throwing tomatoes from the nosebleeds at those who are in the arena. We know for a fact that we can dramatically change the very outcomes that we discussed today. We can change the outcomes around literacy for all children. We can change the outcomes around math proficiency for all children. We just received our state data in Chicago. My eighth graders at every single campus, at all three of our campuses in reading, are outperforming their non-low-income peers. Let me say that again. Poor children on the south side of Chicago are outperforming white children and they're outperforming their wealthy counterparts. That's what it takes. We talk about science, but we got to talk about the science that matters. It's the story of two schools on the same street. One is getting outcomes, the other isn't. My experiences teaching in New York City as a social worker in Cincinnati, as a superintendent and a CEO in Chicago, as a principal in Rochester, has shown me that the difference in those schools, it's the practice, it's the trading. 
It's the practice. It's the training. It's development. It's the leadership. I took my leaders to England to see a school where children, immigrants are getting different outcomes. It was the practice. It was the development. It was the leadership. I spent 10 years, full-time years in education. And when I came to Uncommon, instead of me having to piece together how to make a difference, it was the first time I had received development that not only changed my life, but it changed my ability to impact outcomes. There are bright spots happening in many places. We're not where we want to be in math, but we're following the bright spots to get there. There are cities that are partnering, districts that are partnering with charters in best practice in Colorado, in New York City, in Texas to share best practice. This is what it takes. It takes partnerships, partnerships that are more than just informal conversations with leaders, feel good strategies that are absent of the science that actually bring measurable outcomes for kids. And partnerships, they're not about shifting the responsibility. They're not about moving the accountability. And the partnerships are actually more than just between the school and the parent. It's the whole community. When I was in Rochester, one of our founding board members, Jean Blair Howard, born in 1943, she was one of, along with her brothers, one of the Greensboro Four that sat and led and spearheaded the movement of sit-ins at Woolworth Counters. She encountered racism, systematic racism beyond comparison, but that drove her to create Wilson Commencement Park, an organization that created 50 townhomes and 18 apartments for single parents. These parents received financial literacy. They had low rent costs, leadership development, child care before school, child care after school. They partnered with the schools. When you graduated as an adult from Wilson Commencement Park, you had enough money to put a down payment on your first home. I can't tell you the number of kids that I watched move in to their own houses with their parents because those are the partnerships that are actionable. And so in closing, I read a quote from a book called The Daily Dad by Ryan Holiday. Shout out to Ryan Holiday. I use a lot of his books in my training, Stoicism, some of my favorites. There must be hope. John Lewis said, but you have to have hope. You have to be optimistic in order to continue to move forward. A lot has happened in your life. It's rightly made you cynical about some things, be it politics, relationships, or other people. A lot has happened in history too. And anyone who has ever read a book will have trouble shaking the fact that a lot of lies have been told. A lot of horrible rigging of the system has happened. And a lot that contributes to the mess we're in now. But guess what? You have kids now and you don't get to be a cynical, angry person anymore because you're responsible for raising the next generation. It's imperative that we give our kids hope, that we explain the world to our kids in a way that empowers them with agency, that shows them that progress is and has been possible, 
that as awful as things are, the world still has good bones. You have to teach them that no one and nothing is irredeemable. Done. (laughs) Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at at the Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.